Hey, good morning, Austin Oaks Church. Pastor Brandon here. Um, for those of you who are guests with us this morning or you just happen to have found our live stream, hey, I want to say thank you so much. We are truly humbled and honored that you would let us into your home this morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, I am the lead pastor here at Austin Oaks Church. In our heartbeat, our vision is to be simply about Jesus. He's everything. We want to strive to make him the front and center focal piece of everything that we do. And that's why we try to do everything to help people meet, know, and follow Jesus. That's a little bit about who we are. I am extremely excited for this text this morning. And I want to start out um, with you by sharing a little bit about my history or my background or experience with the church. For many, many years, and I'm talking now like when I was probably like, you know, four to eight, ten years old, somewhere in there, I, like I literally had no idea why we would go to church. The only reason that I could come up with at that point was because my parents made me go, right? Or maybe it's better to say, because I know they're watching, hi mom, hi dad, that they wanted me to go because it was important to them, and so therefore they thought it was important to me, and so they made me go to church, and yes, I'm not going to say I didn't grab hold of anything. There were some things that, that caught my attention. There were some things that the pastor would say that got me curious, right? Like I would even try to sing the hymns. I would pick up the hymnal and, and try to figure out how to not only read the notes, but figure out like how to read the verses. And I couldn't figure it out. I wasn't the, the brightest bulb, right? And so, but I learned really, really well how to pretend to be engaged. Honestly, uh, the vast majority of Sundays, I would either fall asleep or I would end the service by having this pile of sketches from the connection cards that were in the seat in front of me, right? Like you would grab those and you would just start to draw and draw and draw. My parents were fine. As long as I was at church, we were good. Now, when I got older, and let's just say this was like my junior, senior, high school, even early on in college, I honestly didn't see a reason why I should go to church. To me, it absolutely added no value. It was something that my parents wanted me to do, and so I did it then. But it also, to be, to be honest with you, I thought I checked everything off the box, right? I did all of the big church things. I was baptized. I went through catechism, I was confirmed, so I was able to have communion or the Lord's Supper, and I was just like, well, what more is there? Like, maybe church would become a value again once I started to have a family, and then I would drag my kids to church because it's important to me, right? I would just kind of redo the cycle that was done to me. I, and like, honestly, I, I believed in God, I truly did. I, I tried to do some good things for him, but beyond that, church didn't serve a purpose for me. I believe Christianity had a point, but I didn't understand it. To me, at that point in my life, Christianity was just duty. It was moral obligation. It was a religious function. I knew nothing of grace, of God's forgiveness, of the power of God, of the Holy Spirit. I knew none of that. But then God saved me. God made me alive. When I was dead, when I was hopeless, he rescued me. He pulled me out of the pit, out of the muck, out of the mire, and he freed me from sin and shame and guilt. And his power literally transformed me. The addictions that I had to drugs and alcohol and other things, they were snapped. My depression lifted. I began to have a sense of purpose and calling on my life like I never had before. I finally got to experience what joy was. And for the first time in my life, I knew peace. 
because I had peace with God because I realized that I had nothing to prove and there was nothing for me to earn. He loved me because he just loved me. And so because of that, I was able to experience and begin to finally understand what love was. I also began to experience peace with other people, relationships, specifically in my family, were able to be restored. Reconciliation happened because of the gospel. And I was finally able to experience love in relationships. I wanted to give my all for Jesus, 100%. I was passionate, I was on fire, and I loved the church. I couldn't wait for Sundays. Sundays were the highlight of my week. I wanted to sing my heart out. I wanted to hear as much of God's word as I possibly could. I wanted to be with other brothers and sisters. In fact, I look forward to even inviting my friends who didn't know Jesus to church. I wanted to go to church as much as I possibly could. It was the launching pad for my Mondays and my Tuesdays and my Wednesdays. I wouldn't miss a Sunday, even if I was out of town. If I wasn't at my own church, I would find another church because it was just that important to me. But over time, I'm just going to be honest with you, over time I got into the whole, you know, I love Jesus, but not the church thing. The church is full of hypocrites. You know, they only like people like themselves. The church is just an institution. All they care about is their own brand instead of the kingdom of God. They just want your money and all that kind of stuff. And so I thought I could do it better. I thought I could just follow Jesus on my own and not be part of the church. And so what ended up happening was I started to develop a cynical heart a cold heart. I began to become very judgmental, right? The walls that God just tore down through the gospel, I began to rebuild because I started to think that I was better than church people. I got it. They didn't. And praise God, he eventually broke that attitude inside of me and it began to show me again the beauty and the power, and the purpose, and the plan of his church. And I was captivated. I wanted to give my all again for the church. And I began to enter into this journey of seeing the church the way that God sees the church. And to understand what God's plan is for the church and through the church. And I began to understand that truly the church is the hope of the world through Jesus Christ. Now, the reason why I start out with this type of intro is because this Sunday, and specifically even next Sunday, we are going to see through God's word just how important the church is. And my prayer and my hope is that you begin to see that the church is way more compelling and has a far greater purpose than you knew. Now, here's something that I have become completely convinced of. I've experienced it in my own life, and I've heard it through other people's stories and experiences in their journey of following Jesus and their journey with the church. Here it is. Your love for Jesus is directly correlated to your love for the church. Your love for Jesus is directly correlated to your love for the church. And now when I use the word love here, I'm not talking about the emotional, I feel love, even though that's certainly part of it, but I'm talking about a love that just, that produces the actions, that, that influences your behaviors and your thoughts. 
Maybe a better way of saying it is to say it in reverse. Your love for the church is directly correlated to your love for Jesus. Now, I know that potentially some of you have this knee-jerk reaction to this and go, whoa, pastor, you're, you're taking that a little too far. Aren't you self-serving? Because I know your business is to lead the church, and, and maybe you're just saying this because you want our money, and you want our time, and you want our service, and volunteering, and all that other kind of stuff. Aren't you taking this a little far? Listen, if you have that reaction or that thought, I want to encourage you this morning to come to this text with an open heart and open eyes to see it the way that Jesus sees the church. Now, before we get into this text, I have to say this just as, as to remind ourselves that the church, it's not a building, okay? The building is a tool. It's a vehicle. That's all it is. We say it often in our vocabulary, in the way we use the word church, does us a great disservice. Hey, did you go to church this morning? Oh, my church is closed. My church isn't meeting for COVID-19. I can't wait for us to have church again. I wonder when church will reopen. No, you're thinking of the word building. I wonder when the building will reopen. And when you say, I go to church, you're talking about one hour out of the week by which the church functions. The church is a gathering of people, excuse me, is a gathering of people who have gathered around (coughs) the gospel, gathered around the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and future return of King Jesus. That's the church. The church is the new humanity where he took two people and created them to be one through the gospel where he tore down the wall of hostility. The church is the new community. It's the only place where we can have peace with God. It's the only place where we can have peace with each other. It's the only place where true unity is achievable. The church is far more than a building. It's a people who are gathered around Jesus. And if we look at Scripture, we are going to see over and over and over that God placed the church of Jesus Christ at the center of the story. Jesus, right? He's the center and he's the head. And the church is the body of Jesus. The church is central to the gospel, making it central to history. But the problem is, is that we, not him, we tend to push church out to the periphery by making ourselves okay with choosing just how involved we will be with church. We entertain the mindset that church is a consumer commodity that's there to serve me, meet my needs at my convenience in my schedule. But that is not at all how Scripture sees it. If you see it that way, where the church is just an option, where the church is just something you go to, doesn't really add value, it's a consumer good, it's there to serve you, to meet your needs at your time, your convenience, listen, you're you're not going to love the church. You're going to love what the church could do for you, but you're not going to love the church. And make no mistake, 
Your love for Jesus is directly correlated to the church, and your love for the church is directly correlated for your love to your love for Jesus. God makes the church center. So in this morning's text, I want you to see two big ideas. I want you to see the purpose of the church, and then I want you to see your purpose in the church. And I want God to work these ideas into your heart and your mind because when they grab hold of you, they will change how you see church. You will love church. You will want to give your life for it because it is intimately connected to the gospel. So let's look at this. Ephesians chapter 3. And I'm going to read for us all 13 verses and we're going to work our way through this. Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now, made, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you. Not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, this is actually kind of a a funny little um, piece here. Because when you look at verse 1, at least it's funny for me. When you look at verse 1, because I'm a pastor and I totally understand what he's doing here. He starts out, for this reason, I, Paul. And he actually has every intention to launch into this prayer. But he gets distracted. He goes on a tangent because pastors, we, we never do that. We don't ever go on tangents. But Paul, he goes on a 12-verse tangent here. Okay, For this reason, I, Paul, and the reason why I know this, if you go to verse 14, he picks it up. For this reason, I bow. He's like, this was my intention. But just in case you forgot, assuming that you have heard. And he goes on to start talking about this mystery. He's reminding them of who he is and the mystery that was revealed to him and how his call into ministry was to reveal this mystery to them, which is Christ, which is the gospel, which is all of chapter 2, which we have spent three weeks teaching on. That's the mystery. And he launches out saying, I, Paul, I'm a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you, of you Gentiles. He's like literally saying, I am a prisoner. He's in jail when he wrote this letter. And technically, literally, he is not a prisoner of Christ Jesus. If we were just to say literally, Nero is the one who put him in prison. He's a prisoner of Rome, but not from Paul's perspective. Because he understands the greater story that he's part of. He's like, no, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus for preaching this mystery to you Gentiles. 
It's the message that got him in trouble. And the message was revolutionary. It was a radical message. He's teaching people. It's all of chapter 2, right? That you're dead in your sins. There's nothing you can do. You are under God's wrath. No amount of good, no amount of law-following religious regulations could ever make you right with God. It has to be God. That's why in verse 4 it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, he's the one that saved you. He's the one that made you alive. Oh, but not only that. He's including the Gentiles, and he's putting the Gentiles on the same page as the Jews, tearing down the wall of hostility, making them equal, partakers, co-heirs together. No discrimination, no difference, one new humanity, a new covenant, a new temple, which was fighting words to the Jewish people. All people now have equal access and equal standing before God. And it was that message that got Paul in prison. But he says, listen, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus because I'm preaching this gospel for you Gentiles. The mystery is simply this. It's the gospel. This is the mystery. It's the gospel where Jesus is the source and the substance of the mystery. And Paul, he goes on saying, it's like nobody knew what this was. Like all of the Old Testament, they didn't know what God was going to do. Like they knew that God was up to something, that God was doing some redemptive narrative, but they didn't know exactly. They knew that people would be justified by faith. Like they knew something was up. Look at verse 4 and 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. But now it's been revealed. And jump into verse 8 and 9. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, right? This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that was hidden for the ages in God. Now, the Old Testament, we got to make this clear. This isn't like some new, esoteric, mystical revelation that only a few specific religious elite people got. This mystery was open now for all people. But the Old Testament had some thoughts or some allusions to understanding what God was going to do, but not exactly. For instance, we knew in the Old Testament that God had a plan for Gentiles. That somehow, some way, all of the families of the earth, not just Israel, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. That the Messiah would receive all the nations as his inheritance. And that Israel should be and would be a light to the nations. That one, na one time, one day, all nations would come to Jerusalem. But it never said exactly what God was going to do. That God would tear down the Jewish nation underneath God's rule that it would be replaced by this new international community called the church. Nobody saw that coming. Where the church would be literally the body of Christ, organically united to Jesus, where we would be then united in spirit with all people who believe. We would all be incorporated into Jesus, all on equal terms, without any um, distinction. That's the mystery. It's this gospel. But we already talked about that. But here's what we need to learn. And we need to see. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10 here, okay? To me, 
I know I've read this a few times, but I want you to grab hold of this. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay? This word manifold is not the thing that's in your car. That's not the idea here. At least that's what always pops in my head when I read the word manifold. The idea behind this word is multifaceted. In fact, it's a beautiful Greek word, and it's only used once in the Bible, and it's right here. Half of the word means it's, it's comprised of many colors, diversified, it's complex, it's intricate, it's varied in color. And then Paul puts a prefix at the end of this word, which means many. So this word manifold, multifaceted, is really at its core root meant to say multicolored right? Absolutely beautiful. It's so beautiful. Now, one of the ways that helped me think about this is to imagine God as a painter. And as he's painting on the canvas that we call history, he's using thousands upon thousands upon thousands of colors with all sorts of different shades and textures. And on this canvas, this painting that God is painting, as we slowly see it unfolded before us, we begin to see the narrative that, that shows us the Old Testament, how it prepared for the time of the coming Messiah. And then we see Jesus coming on the scene, God in the flesh, the work of Jesus, the salvation that he achieved for us and the victory that he achieved for us. And then when he went back to the Father, he gave us the Holy Spirit. And then we see on this canvas of many, many, many colors, the creation and the growth of the church and all of this is centering around Jesus. All that Paul just said, chapters 1, 2, and even the previous part of chapter 3, the mystery that was made known, why the mystery was made known to him, why it was hidden, why Paul is revealing it to all people is so that. Like, you, you don't miss those two words. So that all of this, all of this, the multicolored of wisdom, the multifaceted picture of God's wisdom would be on display where and to whom? You have to answer those questions. So that, so that the manifold, multicolored picture of God's wisdom would be on display through the church. Through the church. You have to see some. You, got, you have to see that the church is way more some way, way more than something that you just attend to. It's way more than just a one-hour service, way more than just a building. The church is central to history. The church is central to the narrative that God is telling. It's central to the painting that he's, pit, that he's um, depicting in front of the whole world. The church, 
He's displaying his multi-colored wisdom through the church. The gospel launched the formation of the church. We have done ourselves such a great disservice by, like I said before, the way we use the word church. But not only that. Now, hear me. I'm not downplaying this. But so often we talk about your personal relationship with Jesus, which is true. That's like the first nine verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians. It's you, you, you were dead. He saved you, he made you alive. But then the second part of chapter 2 shows the inclusion of all people together in the body. Like it's not just your personal relationship with Jesus. You need to understand that your relationship with Jesus is intimately connected to every other brother and sister who believes in Jesus because we're connected to the head I mean nobody saw this coming the church is way more powerful and has way more purpose than we have ever understood this means that God has always planned on using the church to display his wisdom his glory his riches of grace to display his reconciling work of Jesus it's supposed to be in the church When people look at the church, they ought to be seeing trophies of grace, of peace, of unity, and reconciliation. People who are eager and ready to give of themselves to serve other people. When people look at the church, they ought to be seeing a multi-ethnic, a multi-diverse group of people who love each other, even though some of their cultural distinctions would be like, why are they coming together? That makes no sense. Well, they're coming together because of Jesus. Nothing on earth is like the church. Nothing on earth is like the church. The church displays People's lives who have been radically transformed, moved from death to life. But the church also displays the new humanity of reconciled people. It's the church. And listen, friends, it is through the church where we live this out. Jesus has made it absolutely clear in the Gospel of John that how we live and behave and act in the church will be one of, us, one of our greatest displays of the power of God. How we love one another. How we serve one another. How we are united will show the world Jesus. The church isn't a consumer good. It's way more than you ever thought. Way more. The church ought to be a place when people on the outside who don't know Jesus look in and go, how can these people who are so different, like, I'm going to lean in here. Like, the church should be comprised of, don't email me, okay? The church should be comprised of Republicans and Democrats and independence, and any other party. And we should get along. We should love each other. We should serve each other instead of judging each other. Because then people will look in and be like, how are these people who are so diametrically opposed culturally get together, love each other, serve each other, and give their lives for one another? Oh, there's only one thing in the world that could do that called the gospel. 
You don't believe me? Look at the people that Jesus called together to be his first 12 disciples. Well, okay, you got uh, Simon the Zealot, right, who was a radical, no, no one's going to infiltrate and water down the Jewish system, like, no, we're not going to let any insiders, you know, ruin, or outsiders ruin anything that we have. And then you've got Matthew the tax collector, who was a hypocrite and betrayed his own people. Considered dog and, and scum, not even worthy of being the Jewish people. Who did Jesus call together to be disciples? Oh, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And yeah, they sat around a fire and oh yeah, they, sh- they heard you know, Jesus teaching it and saw the powers of God. And oh yeah, I'm sure they heard Jesus say, I love you to each other. And I'm sure there were some intriguing conversations around the campfire. But those two people were radically transformed by Jesus and his spirit. And they were used to flip the world upside down. That's the gospel, my friends. The church is to be this constant demonstration of God's power, of his grace and his wisdom. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is on display. But for who? Who's watching this? Now, this is the part that boggles my brain. We don't think this way, but we need to. Look who the audience is watching this story unfold, right? So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to who? The rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Well, who are the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places? Well, that's a common term that Paul uses in this letter in Ephesians. We're going to see it again coming up as we talked about it even in chapter 1. It's the spiritual beings. It's angels, good and bad. All of them. They're leaning in. They're peering in, watching all of this unfold. They have no idea what's going to happen. And they're intrigued by all of this. This isn't the only place that we have this in Scripture. We're also told in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, that these angels, they're leaning in. They're peeking over to see how this is all going to unfold. They want to see the painting that God is painting with his multicolored aspect of his wisdom. They have no clue. They had no idea that Jesus, the Son of God, was going to come and willingly give his life to be mocked and betrayed, to be nailed to a cross, to be accursed, to die for people who don't care for him, who have willingly betrayed him and rebelled against him, and then to be in the tomb dead for three days and through the power of God come back and conquer death and the grave so that he's victorious over that and that so that we can be victorious and then he ascends and they had no idea that he was going to send his Holy Spirit to live in every single person who believed where the presence of God now dwells with us. They had no idea. They had no idea that God was then going to form a group of people and entrust this amazing message of the gospel to people who are foolish, who are weak, who are confused, who are still selfish, who still get it all wrong and entrust it to them to go out to the world to make disciples telling everybody about Jesus. Like they had no idea all of this. And they're watching it still unfold to this day, to this very moment. Think about that. The angels are watching Austin Oaks Church. The good angels and the bad angels, they want to see how this is all going to unfold. The good angels, they don't understand sin. They don't understand grace. They had never had a need of it. 
And they're watching us experience God's grace and watching us move from death to life and in awe and then to go out and shape the world. Even the bad angels, the demons, right? The even principalities and powers, they have to be looking at this grand story and narrative and they're watching the wisdom unfold. And they thought at one moment that they were victorious, but they're going, how did this defeat us? I read this and I go, man, isn't it any wonder that the devil and the demons absolutely hate the church? It should be no surprise because the, the, the church is central to the gospel. It's, it's no wonder that the enemy would have all of these schemes and attacks directly against the church. It's no wonder that he would work tirelessly on making the church distracted from its main purpose. Making it confused and making it about all sorts of other things. It is no wonder that the enemy would love to create division and then to produce all of these pockets of personal preferences in the church. And it wouldn't confuse us. It shouldn't surprise us that he would even try to make the church a political engine. To get people to see the church just as a consumer good. To get people to see the church as unimportant, as just an option, as something that we could do without. The church is far greater than anything we could have ever imagined, friends. So I want to lean in for a bit here. And, and I want you to understand, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, okay? Everything that I'm going to share with you are things that I'm going through, my family's going through, things that we're wrestling with as well. But I know, and we all know this, the past five months since COVID entered our world, right, or at least where we had to start being quarantined, it flipped upside down our normal way of going about life, and that includes church. And early on, the church people who were going to church regularly, we all rallied together, and we were all going to do what we needed to do and meet online and, and all those types of things. But over time, over time, I began to hear more and more of how difficult it is to still engage in the life of the church. And it is difficult Absolutely, there's a lot of things that create these obstacles that make us just go, it's too hard. The Netflix phenomenon is real. I'll get to it later. I will watch demand. I will watch this church and that church and this one. Or maybe we just never watch it at all. Like quarantine fatigue, it's real. Okay, like I get that. Gathering together to worship and hear God's word online, I've been hearing just how hard it is to, to engage in that, especially those who have young kids. It's really hard to do it. Trust me, the Zissi clan, we are there. There are moments you're just like, I, at least I hear from my wife, and when Chad's preaching or when Josh is preaching, I'm home with the kids, and I'm just like, this is too hard. We'll just watch it later. And here's the reality. Later never comes. We get busy with other things, and the next thing you know, it's been three, four weeks before you heard a sermon or connected with anybody in the church. I've even heard some people say that they will re-engage church life once COVID has passed. We mean to watch it. We mean to engage, but we'll get to it later, all that kind of stuff. The struggle is real. Listen, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I just want to call it out. That's, that's all I want to do. It is difficult. It is a struggle, 100%. And I know there's a lot of things that create a whole new way of living. 
I know for some of us it's impossible to get in a community. I totally get that. I understand that. But just because it's a struggle and just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to be intentionally still be part of the life of the church. We can't hit the pause button and check out. We can't do it. There's too much at stake. The cosmic realm is watching us. But not only that, the world is watching us. The church isn't on pause. God knew all of this was going to happen, and he wasn't going to say somewhere in his sovereign plan, oh, from March to whenever to the vaccine, church is on pause, we're good. No, there is no pause. There is no pause. So I'm going to encourage you, don't hit the pause button. Still find a way somehow to re-engage intentionally with the life of the church. Now, for those of us who have kids, I'm speaking to myself. Please hear that. I'm speaking to myself. For those of us who have kids at home, we have to engage church in this season. We have to. We absolutely have to. Because what we have to realize is by the, what we choose to do to engage church or not engage church is showing our kids what we value. And we're ultimately instilling certain values into them because listen disciple making is never on pause we have to do the hard things we have to be creative we have to be innovative and praise god for technology that we can do these types of things but not only that your role and your purpose in the church isn't on pause and i'm going to lean into this more next week and this is what paul is saying it's like i gave my life for this because I experience God's grace. I understand who I am. I'm the least of all the prophets. I'm a great sinner. And I cannot get over the fact that he saved me. That he pulled me out. And he gave me this gift of ministry to tell other people about the unsearchable riches of Jesus. I'm going to give my life for it. Even if it means I'm going to be thrown in prison. I don't care. Because this is the mystery. And the whole world, even the angelic world and the spiritual being world, is watching this unfold. You have a plan and a purpose. And I can't think of a better time than to rediscover that than right now. In fact, let me even say this. If you don't know your plan or purpose, you're not going to love the church because your plan and purpose is intimately connected to the church because you are the body of Christ. You were saved to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. And generally speaking, your purpose, your role in the church is to tell other people about the unsearchable riches of Jesus, of his grace, to be part of the painting that God is doing through the church. That is your role. And that is your great privilege. And it's not on pause. The church isn't on pause. Look at verse 11 and 12 as we conclude. This, all of this, was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of this, this was the plan. This was his purpose all along that he would use the church. 
and that he would build a church to not only demonstrate to the world around us, but then to all of the spiritual beings, the good angels and the evil angels, the multicolored, multifaceted, the manifold wisdom of God. This was his purpose from the very beginning, and now it's made known. And it's through him that we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So here's what I want to say as we conclude. This church, 40 years from now in Ephesus, gets rebuked by Jesus himself for abandoning their first love. That first love includes the church. You can't separate Jesus from his church. You you just can't. And we're going to see that a little bit later in Ephesians. If we embrace this truth and understand the grand purpose of the church, and if we understood what our purpose was in the church, I I am so convinced that we wouldn't abandon the love that we had at first when we first received the grace of God. We wouldn't abandon it. We would strive to meet together. We would find creative ways to still engage in life in church, and we would still find creative ways to go about sharing the unsearchable riches of Christ, even in this time. So I'm asking you this morning through the prompting of the Holy Spirit, would you awake from your sleep and see again the beauty, the power, and the purpose of the church? Would you awake from your slumber and embrace your unique privilege to share others, the, to share with others the unsearchable riches of Christ? We have access to the throne of grace. We can come with boldness and confidence knowing that he hears us. So would you this morning do whatever it takes in your life to get right with him? To choose to engage in a life in the church? And to choose to engage your purpose in the church? You can't be on pause. You just can't. There is way too much at stake. And God's plan, even today, in this time, and in this place, is to still use the church to declare the wisdom of God. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And God, I just ask that you would renew a passion and a desire in our hearts to re-engage in the life of the church. And I know my friends out there, they, they miss coming together. They miss the church. And, and I get that. And, and I get the struggles and the tensions that we all have with COVID in, in the present realities around us. Lord, so I pray against anybody feeling guilt or shame in this time. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would prompt us, encourage us to find creative and innovative ways to still engage in the life of the church. Lord, I pray that you would use us, use the church, not just Austin Oaks Church, but other churches that love you and follow you. Lord, would you use them in this time to declare and show off the unsearchable riches of your son Jesus and to display the multicolored wisdom of God. So Lord, we just say, here we are. Convict us of sin and indifference as you so see needed. And Lord, would you then fuel us and energize us 
by your grace to the glory of your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Blessings, church. We love you and we miss you.